This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, if you are a Star Wars fan, and frankly, even if you're not, you have probably seen scenes of Luke Skywalker in The Force Awakens and in promotional materials for The Last Jedi, where he and eventually Rey are standing on an island with ancient looking structures on it. That is a real island. <laughs> That's not a set. Uh, and those structures are also not sets that were built for the film. They are part of a real thing that is ancient. Uh, Skellig Michael, the island where those scenes were shot, is a historic site with a fascinating history all its own. It's also got kind of a nice juxtaposition because a big chunk of its history is is much older. And then there's a newer history of some of the more modern uh, things that have been built on the island. Um, so since I have Star Wars rabies and I can barely manage to contain myself while I wait for The Last Jedi to premiere, uh, and because this really is a legitimately very, very interesting uh, historical site, I thought it might be fun to delve into this location and its rich history for the podcast. Yeah, if you were concerned, based on the number of times that we said The Last Jedi, we're not going to be talking about anything in the movie. At all. Happens on the island at all. That's no- pretty much... All the Star Wars talk except a story about filming at the end. And it, even that has nothing to do. So we're not going to spoil anyone on anything related to Star Wars. <laughs> there are no Star Wars. You would have had to have not gone to see The Force Awakens yet for that to have been a spoiler. Yeah. Which I don't know. Maybe well, you didn't. But at y- this point, if you haven't gone to see The Force Awakens, then. I think uh, you would have to have been in media blackout because it's yeah. appeared on so many like magazine covers, television yeah. promos, um, you know, interviews are often intercut if you see them on television <laughs> with shots of this island. So it's, I, I don't think we're giving anything away. I feel confident that we have skirted any right. territory. Well, and I, I think if you uh, have not yet seen Force Awakens, you probably don't care mm-hmm. about Star Wars spoilers. Right. None of which are in here anyway. We are literally just talking about the history of this <laughs> island. I want to be very clear. Okay. Skellig Michael is one of two islands that make up the Skellig Islands. 
The word skellig derives from the Irish word for steep rock. And then the other island is the smaller one of the two. It's called Little Island, and it's closed to visitors. Sometimes you'll also see Skellig Michael called Great Skellig. Yep. Uh, also, you'll see it spelled in various different ways. We're going with kind of the most basic uh, globally facing spelling that gets used a lot. It's probably the Americanized spelling. Uh, that's just the scoop on that. If you see it spelled a different way, that's why. And Skellig Michael is uh, seven miles, that's 11.6 kilometers, west of the edge of Ireland's Ivra Peninsula in County Kerry. And the highest elevation of the island is 715 feet. That's about 218 meters. And this island is tiny. It is less than a square mile in area. So if you do hectares, that's 21.9 hectares. The Minister for Art, Heritage, and the Geltacht owns Skellig Michael on behalf of the Irish people. And there's also a lighthouse and support buildings for the lighthouse on the southern end of the island, as well as a helipad. And this portion of the island falls outside of the ownership arrangement mentioned above. We'll get a little bit more into that in a bit. The geological makeup of Skellig Michael is what's called Old Red Sandstone. Sedimentary layers of rock deposited somewhere between 360 and 374 million years ago during the Devonian period, when Ireland was part of a much larger continent. It's the westernmost European instance of Devonian sandstone, which can be found throughout Britain and Ireland, Scandinavia, and Greenland. It's also in portions of Canada. Uh, Skellig Michael also has two twin peaks with a valley in the middle, which has come to be known as Christ's Saddle. Uh, and that helipad that we mentioned briefly is for emergencies only. That's not a standard way to get on and off the island or special cases. Um, so from the middle of May to September, visitors may travel to Skellig Michael, but only by boat. And it is for day visits exclusively. And I should also mention that sometimes if they have had damage in the winter, they will shorten that window that visitors can come. Tourists also cannot stay overnight on the island, and there are no amenities. Uh, basically, you you go for a little while, and you get back on the boat, and you leave. Uh, the island is also designated a statutory nature reserve, so no animal visitors are allowed, and no trash can be left behind. The animals that most commonly benefit from the island's reserve status are birds. Seabirds often nest there during their respective breeding seasons. Skellig Michael is considered one of the most important breeding grounds for birds in Ireland, and for some species, it's one of the most important places in the world. The storm petrel and Manx shearwater have some of their largest breeding groups on the island, and it's also home to puffins, which I love, uh, and kittiwake, among others. Peregrine falcons also nest there, although not every year, and there are a few uh, mammals on the island as well, including gray seals, house mice, and rabbits. Also of interest in terms of its natural makeup uh, is the lichen that grows on Skellig Michael. There are actually 128 different species of lichen found on this tiny rocky island and two Lichenocolis fungi. That's enough to classify it as a nationally important site for lichen growth based on a conservation study that was conducted in 2009. To get to more of the, the human-made structures. Skellig Michael is also home to a monastery that was built hundreds of years ago, and we're going to get into the history of that and more detailed descriptions of the monastery in just a bit. But at first, uh, but first, we're going to talk about how it exists there today. The settlement has two different segments, and the first is the monastery itself, which is built on the island's east side, high up on sloping areas of rock. 
The monastery has three access points, all of which involve navigating a lot of steps. A lot of steps. Like they actually say in the vis- any of the visitor stuff that you may read, like the visitor's advisories, like please don't come if you're not ready to take on like 600 steps because <laughs> it is vigorous work. <laughs> and it's uh, not, there's not an easy way up. There's, like I said, there are no amenities. There's no elevator. There are no chairlifts. You have to handle it yourself. Uh, and those steps are really amazing because they're cut from the rock of the island, from the landing point where you would first step foot on the island up to the highest point where water can possibly reach. And then above that height, the steps continue, but from then on, they're made of dry stone masonry. The structures within the monastery include a church, two oratories, seven beehive cells, water cisterns, and a cemetery and locked, which I have also heard Irish people say liocht. Locked is a square or rectangular structure built with layers of stones, but no mortar. While they have been found at a number of Irish early Christian monastic sites, their function isn't entirely clear. There have been several theories, including that they may have marked graves of important holy people or were used to house relics or had some sort of social spiritual function. And there are also two large garden terraces and retaining walls, which form the foundation of the entire site. The second area of construction is separate from the monastery itself on ledges of the South Peak. It's composed of several structures, including an oratory, altar, locked, and water cisterns. Steps cut out of the rock provide access to these structures, which are described in Archaeological Stratigraphic Report written in 2011 as daringly constructed. I sort of feel that way about everything on Skellig Michael. I, it's so beautiful, but I don't know that I am its target visitor because I think I would spend the whole time screaming in fear that I would just fall. It's all very steep. That name is apt. Uh, and we're going to go a little bit deeper into talking about those daring structures that Tracy just mentioned uh, and where they fit into the island's history. But first, we're going to pause for a quick sponsor break. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand, and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to the women on the iHeartRadio app on Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host the Bobby Bones show and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at three o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together and we get into a room and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.
reference to Skellig Michael goes all the way back to 1700 BCE. It's referenced as the place where the prince Ur, fifth son of Melissius, died when his ship was separated from the rest of his fleet during a storm, crashed upon a rock, and sank. This is, however, a folkloric account, so it remains unverified. There's another unverified story of Skellig Michael set in the 5th century. In this instance, after a conflict between the kings of Cashel and the kings of Munster, the king of West Munster, named Dwach, is said to have fled to Skellig Michael. And while this event is written uh, as having happened in the 5th century, that account was recorded in either the 8th or the 9th century. So its, its accuracy is hard to gauge. We know for certain, based on the structures that we talked about earlier, that monks moved into the island at some point, but exactly when that happened also isn't clear. The earliest estimates place it at, place the start of the monastery somewhere in the 6th century, although it could have been built at, as late as the 8th century. And then the earliest known reference to the monastery is in an annal entry from the year 824, which describes a Norse raid on Skellig Michael. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, disparate accounts that that place that at different times, but it's somewhere in there. I think most people tend to favor the earlier thing because a lot of the accounts that happen later on, uh, and we'll talk about it in a minute, suggest that it was already functioning. Uh, the position of this monastery is actually quite well chosen. It's 600 feet above sea level, and where it sits on the island and, and in relation to its peaks offers some natural shelter, and it has plenty of stones to use in building uh, so the monks could access stone from right there on the island to build these structures. And it enabled relatively easy water collection, so channels were cut into sloping stone to direct water right into cisterns that they had placed. And the two primary cisterns that were used were built to hold roughly 120 gallons, that's about 450 liters of water. One of the unique aspects of the monastery is the cell structures that are sometimes described as, as beehives. These hives are shaped like inverted elliptic paraboloids. So not, not beehives like the flat ones in boxes that are manufactured, but the domed ones. Yeah, that bees would actually build on their own. Yeah, or that, you know, sometimes uh, people keep bees in baskets that are that shaped, like an inverted semi-dome sort of structure. They have a doorway built into the front of each of them and steps that lead in and out of the doors. The beehive cells are all arranged along the monastery's large oratory, but there are some differences among them, and the cells are lettered for identification. Yeah, and just for clarity, um, the cell letter order does not in any way pertain to their age order, which uh, I was trying to explain this to to a friend, and they got a little thrown by that. So just know that this the A through um, <laughs> G does not in any way suggest that A came first and G was at the end. They're with completely separate um, naming systems. So cell A is the largest one. It actually has a second interior level, and it's believed to have been a communal space. And it's quite large. At the base of the structure, the walls of cell A are 1.8 meters thick. So that's almost six feet. And the interior space is about 15 by 12.5 feet. That's about 4.6 by 3.8 meters. And there's an interior height of 16 feet. It's about five meters. Cells B and C are smaller. They're about two-thirds the size of cell A. Cell D is actually no longer intact, but it was probably the oldest cell on the site. Probably it collapsed before cell C was completed. Cell E is bigger than B and C, but smaller than A. 
<laughs> this is like a word problem <laughs> in the SATs. Cell F is smaller in size to B and C. And it has these interior slabs that are arranged in a manner that suggests it might have been a sleeping area. These cells were built at various points in time, and they aren't homogenous in their size, as noted, or in the way the stonework is done. Yeah, it's pretty clear evidence that uh, they were worked on at various points in time. So uh, it's, it spans some number of years. Uh, there is a central church at the monastery, that is St. Michael's, and it's partially collapsed. Uh, and what would have been its roof, which would have been made of wood, is long gone. The church appears uh, also to have not been built all at the same time, but in two different stages. The second one to expand on what was a fairly small church that was built in the first phase. While a prominent and an impressive aspect of the monastery's design is its retaining walls, they have experienced multiple structural failures throughout the life of the site, beginning when it was still occupied. The walls have been the focus of a lot of conservation and preservation work over the years. Yeah, they're amazing in that they really are, you know, holding up all of this man-made structure, but they definitely are bearing the weight of that man-made structure, and as a consequence, sometimes they get tired and they break. <laughs> Cells don't really get, or uh, walls don't really get tired, I know, nobody needs to tell me, but they get worn out. <laughs> um so the daring structures that we referenced a little while ago make up what's come to be called the hermitage. And so in the modern era, um, these man-made structures on Skellig Michael's South Peaks, so they're a little bit away from the others, were first referenced in an 1841 mapping survey. And then they made another appearance on record in the 1850s when Lord Dunraven visited the island and wrote of having seen the ruins of a quadrangular building there. The South Peak ruins were noted again by visiting scholars in the 1950s, but it actually wasn't until the 1980s that a study of the site was ordered by the Office of Public Works. There are three terraces that make up the hermitage. There's a garden and dwelling terrace that's 43 feet. That's about 13 meters long. It ranges in width from 6.5 to 13 feet, which is 2 to 4 meters one end of the terrace, which includes a section of the retaining wall, is about five feet or one and a half meters high, and that remains intact. The other end of it, though, has collapsed. The oratory terrace sits at a right angle to the garden and dwelling terrace, and it's about 13 feet, that's four meters, higher up on the peak. On this terrace is a small oratory with an interior space of 7.5 by 6.5 feet. That's about 2.3 by 2 meters. And this terrace extends far past the oratory to the east, although it is quite a narrow sort of terrace that you're, you're on at that point. From the oratory terrace, the outer terrace used to be reachable via a traverse that was chiseled from the stone by the monks. But in modern times, it's a place that's really best visited by skilled climbers and no one else. It's treacherous to navigate the ledges that you have to move across. It's not clear if that outer terrace was ever completed, and it's also not clear what its function was. Yeah, I watched a brief, like, newsreel of a team that was going up when they were doing some uh, preservation investigation, and it's like, look, we found handhelds. Like, they're, li <laughs> they're literally basically just scaling up the rock face until they actually found something that a human could stand on. So it is not just something you would go, hey, I'd like to go up there. <laughs> it's, uh, 
uh, again, not a place that I should maybe visit because it looks terrifying. Um, sometime before the early 11th century, the island monastery was dedicated to St. Michael. St. Fianon is also closely tied to the history of the monastery and may have been its founder. He's often referenced as the founder. But again, it's all a little unclear. Records of the late 12th century uh, indicate that the settlement was occupied and having regular mass at that point. But soon after, in the 13th century, shifting church structure in Ireland and increased instances of inclement weather on and around the island led the, uh, the monastery to be abandoned. The monks who had been living there moved to the mainland village of Ballinskelligs. And after that point, the monastery at Skellig Michael was considered part of the Ballinskelligs monastery. Yeah, but it wasn't really, uh, it's not believed to have been occupied after that point. It just kind of was was notated as part of their their larger um, kind of organizational structure. But again, like there had been a, a shift in climate and they, it really was not easy or safe to occupy that area any longer. From the 14th to the 16th centuries, the island appears on navigational charts that were used by both Italian and Iberian seafarers. The monastery was officially closed in the 16th century with Henry VIII's dissolution of monasteries, and it passed into private ownership by a family named Butler. The Butler family retained ownership of the island until 1821. In November of 1820, J. Butler was approached by the government's Board of Works about a permanent lease on the island so that two lighthouses could be built there. And after some back and forth, legal experts investigating the situation determined that Butler's legal ownership of the land was not clearly documented. After an appraisal of the property, the Butler estate was paid 780 pounds for Skellig Michael and the commissioners of Irish Lights assumed ownership of it. We're going to talk about the lighthouses in just a moment, but first we're going to pause and have another short sponsor break. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with stuff you missed in history class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Hi, everybody. My name is Max Homa. And I'm Shane Bacon, and we want to tell you about our new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. I'm a PGA Tour champion and a guy that has dreamed his whole life to be on the largest stage, compete in the biggest events, and have a chance at making history in a sport that has been a bit of a roller coaster for me as a professional. I know the only reason you chase this dream of being a pro is you could one day become a crossover media darling. You, too, could be a co-host of a podcast. And that dream is now a reality. Max and I will take you through life on the PGA Tour, and our goal is to allow you in as we both pay our respective rents and bills from this silly sport that we can't help but love. So do us a favor. Download and subscribe to Get a Grip with Max Home and Shane Bacon. 
It's our opportunity to bring to life the conversations we are already having, the rants and tangents we will tackle, and the best and worst parts of being a professional golfer. Way more best parts, bro. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Homan, Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Construction of the two lighthouses at Skellig Michael began in August of 1821. Inspector George Halpin designed the buildings and roadway and oversaw initial construction. The lighthouse road uh, runs from the upper lighthouse site, which is uh, on the, the western side of the island, south to the coast, and then around the island's south and east edges to the east landing. There is no road along the northern shore of the island. There aren't many records of the actual construction process, but both lighthouses were completed and in use by the end of 1826. The taller of the two lights was nearly 400 feet. That's 121 meters above the high water mark, with a visibility range of 25 miles, or 40 kilometers. The lower light was 175 feet, or 53.3 meters, above the high water mark, with a visibility range of 18 miles, or 29 kilometers. Both were non-moving lights. Uh, in a sad note, in 1869, so more than 40 years into the lighthouse's life, a small modern grave was added to the chapel at Skellig Michael. Uh, at that point, lighthouse keeper W. Callahan buried two of his small children there after both had died of an illness. He then requested and was granted a transfer elsewhere as he was concerned for the health of his remaining child. So there is one instance of a modern, I'm using the air quotes since it was in the 1800s, but a modern grave there at the site. The upper light was in service for 44 years until it was supplanted by another lighthouse north of the Skellig Islands in 1870. The lower lighthouse has remained in use. It's still in use today, although there's been an update to it that we'll talk about in a moment. Yeah, there's actually been a couple of updates, but uh, the Office of Public Works took possession of the monastery as a state guardianship in 1880 with the intent to repair the crumbling structures and establish an ongoing plan for conservation of the site. In 1909, the lower lighthouse was renovated and updated with a rotating, more powerful light. The lower light in the original rubble masonry tower remained in use for 146 years. It was extinguished in 1966 and a temporary lantern was erected while an entirely new tower was built. The following year, the new lighthouse was online, boasting another upgrade to 1.8 million candles light. In 1969, Skellig Michael's helipad was constructed on the eastern coast of the island. And that helipad is made of reinforced concrete and three very thick columns support it off the cliff face. It is terrifying as everything else to me to look at. Uh, on the, the cliff side, the open side of the helipad, it is a 121 foot or 37 meter drop directly into the ocean. In 1978, Skellig Michael became the focus of a long-term conservation project. At that point, a retaining wall near the church that's part of the monastery, St. Michael's, had experienced a structural failure, and it was prioritized as the project's first order of business. Uh, and additionally, steps that were leading up to the main entrance of the monastery also needed restoration. Natural water erosion had claimed some of the lower sections that reach into the waterline, and heavy use of these stairways during periods of lighthouse construction had also really damaged some of the masonry. Only one of the three stairways leading to the main monastery is currently accessible to visitors. In 1980, excavation work began at the site, and that work has continued for decades. 
The National Monument Service of Ireland was responsible for these efforts. That organization has been part of various government departments over the years, but its work at Skellig Michael has continued seasonally throughout all those reorganizations. Yeah, there's a, a narrow window. Winter, you can't really go up there and do any sort of excavation uh, to examine the ruins because it's just too cold. Uh, in 1981, a project was completed that had begun in 1978 to finally automate the lighthouse. In 1989, the Commissioners of Irish Lights sold the island Skellig Michael to the state, which was already the guardian of the monastery, with the exception of the remaining active lighthouse and its related structures. Yeah, the Commissioners of Irish Lights still retained that lighthouse area. And then in 1996, Skellig Michael became a UNESCO World Heritage Site. On October 22, 2001, that lighthouse was converted to solar power, a lamp change, which was done at the same time, reduced the light's reach to 19 miles. Diesel generators are still on hand for backup power. In 2010, the focus of archaeological effort shifted to the lighthouse road. And in 2013, seven tons of stone were brought to the island via military airlift to be used in the road's restoration. There have been two rescue operations launched from Skellig Michael to date. On October 28, 1916, three of its lighthouse keepers helped rescue two boatloads of survivors from the SS Marina, which was a British cargo ship that had been torpedoed by a German U-boat. While 18 men died in the attack, more than 100 were saved. The three keepers were awarded one pound from the Board of Trade and an additional guinea from the SS Marina's owner, the Donaldson Line. Yep, they each got that award. Uh, on February 27, 1944, an aircraft exploded in midair after colliding with the highest peak of the island and falling in pieces into the water. And British aircraft and the lighthouse keepers of Skellig Michael executed a search, but neither the wreckage nor any survivors were ever found. Unfortunately, the use of Skellig Michael as a filming location has been the source of some friction. Archaeology specialists voiced concerns about the safety of the monastery, and Birdwatch Ireland, which is an independent conservation group, criticized Ireland's Minister of Arts for approving the use of the island as a location without involving a third party specializing in conservation and bird habitat assessment. And unfortunately, those concerns were brought into sharp focus in 2014 when a helicopter on a site scouting flight caused a number of kittiwake nests to be disturbed. The downdraft from the chopper's propeller caused some of the chicks to be swept into the sea, and they were killed by seagulls. After this incident, everyone involved reassessed the situation. Additional flights were canceled. The filming schedule was, was reviewed to avoid the primary kittiwake breed, breeding season, although other birds still nesting on the island caused continued concern on the part of Birdwatch Ireland. Birdwatch Ireland's point of view is that there was a breach in established EU protocol by doing it this way. The Office of the Minister of Arts remained insistent, though, that the European Union Habitats Directive was upheld. So there's some disagreement on that point. Yeah, I did notice there are a few instances regarding Skellig Michael outside of this where there is disagreement about how restoration has been handled or whether... Um, you know, everything has been executed in the proper way and to the letter of the law. And it usually, everything I found just turns out to be a very similar back and forth of, you did it wrong. No, we didn't. We did everything like this. We don't agree with you. We think you're lying. Like, that just goes on and on and on. So it's a little hard to parse out. Um, Skellig Michael, unbeknownst to me, the site of much disagreement. Uh, but to end all of this on a more poetic note, 
It seems fitting to mention the island as it was seen through the eyes of one of Ireland's most famous creative minds. And in 1910, writer George Bernard Shaw visited Skellig Michael, and it made a very strong impression. He later wrote the following, quote, But for the magic that takes you out, far out of this time and this world, there is Skellig Michael, 10 miles off Kerry Coast, shooting straight up 700 feet sheer out of the Atlantic. Whoever has not stood in the graveyard and their beehive oratory does not know Ireland through and through. That's lovely. It is very lovely. Thanks, George Bernard Shaw. Do you also have lovely listener mail? Uh, I do. I have lovely mail, which involves gifts from our listener, Angie. She writes, Dear Tracy and Holly, I'm a relatively new listener, but my addiction to listening to your show daily has caught me up quite a bit. I'm currently living in South Korea with my family since my husband is in the military, and listening to your show has helped with the isolation that can come from living in a rural area of a foreign country where I'm embarrassed to admit I can barely speak any Korean. So I want to thank you for being my friends every day while I'm taking care of my two-year-old and my daily tasks. The friends that I have made here are very much aware of my fangirl status with your podcast, and they will ask me what new and interesting topics I have recently learned about. So it makes me happy knowing that I'm sharing knowledge in a time where entertainment has seemed more important than learning. And luckily for me, your podcast is both entertaining and educational. Um, she mentions that her physical therapist, uh, who is Korean, uh, asked about our podcast, and she told him about our Prince Sato episode. Uh, and he said that he is a descendant of Prince Sato, being able to trace back his family history, since it is very common for Korean families to have records of their lineage dating back hundreds of years. Um, and she talked about the Korean holiday that kind of uh, is the equivalent of Thanksgiving, where everyone travels home, eats traditional food, and visits their ancestors' burial sites to make food offerings, and finally, ending the holiday with a midnight dance under the harvest moon. This is one of the holidays where every store stocks up with expensive spam gift sets, which you briefly mentioned during your spam podcast. I wanted to send you some traditional treats that we enjoy. Uh, and then she describes them. There's these super yummy little confectionaries that she sent. She said, we're moving next month to Oahu. And I joke with my husband that the army is taking us on a worldwide tour of spam. First Korea and now Hawaii. And lucky for us, we enjoy eating it. I cannot wait to be able to strike up a conversation with a local about the history of spam, the pineapple industry and or leprosy. Although I might get some suspicious looks from that last one. Uh, she also talks a little bit about Tokyo Disneyland and Disney Sea, but thank you for this amazing parcel. She sent us a lot of different stuff. So when you are in the office next, which is soonish, we'll pick through it and and taste everything. Yay! It's so Angie, thank you so much. What a delightful treat. Like, we get some of the best gifts. I feel very spoiled by our listeners. Uh, if you would like to write to us, don't feel like you have to send us a gift. You could just write to us via email at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us across the spectrum of social media as Mist in History. Uh, and we are also at mistinhistory.com, where you can find every show that has ever existed of the podcast, including those way before Tracy and I were ever involved in it, and show notes for any of the ones that Tracy and I have worked on. Uh, so come along and listen to history with us at mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. This is Danny Shapiro, host of the hit podcast, Family Secrets. I hope you'll join us for some incredible conversations about family, identity, and what happens to both when the secrets that have been kept from us and the secrets we keep finally come to light. 
Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History class.